Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on December 2nd, 2019, honoring the work of Professor Gil Eyal of Columbia University's Department of Sociology. Professor Eyal studies the roles that experts play in society and the social forces that make expertise possible, especially when lay people contest institutional expertise. His 2019 book, The Crisis of Expertise, argues that expertise itself is a relatively recent concept that nevertheless has meant different things at different times in history. In particular, speaking of expertise as undergoing a uniquely urgent crisis misrepresents how concerns about expertise tend to emerge out of long-standing uncertainty about who should count as an expert, whose opinions and judgments matter, and how those opinions and judgments should be used in the public realm. Professor Eyal suggests that today's public debates about expertise for instance, surrounding climate change or anti-vaccination, reveal the close sociological relationships between science and politics. Now let's hear from Professor E.L. Um, okay, so there's a certain emotional ambivalence um, that a book panel of this sort holds for me, the author of the book. What's the point of author meet critics uh, panels like this? Why do we hold them? There's obviously a substantive interest. Um, the topic is important, we'd like to debate it, and we will. Undeniably, there's also a promotional, self-promotional uh, dimension. And of course, it's also a ritual. We're designed to honor the author. Um, so why then the ambivalence? Well, what kind of a ritual is this? This is a rite of passage for the book, not for me. It now leaves my own small circle where it was protected and becomes a public person. The author meet critics uh, panel is a ritual by which the message is imparted to me politely but firmly that I no longer have sole jurisdiction, uh, that the book is no longer a child, a minor, um, whose parents, namely me, have the right to say the last word about them. It is a young adult self-reliant and entitled to live an independent life, uh, to socialize with whoever they want, to say whatever they want, perhaps even to contradict me. Um, hence, this is a bittersweet moment. It's a moment of farewell tinged with anxiety. What will happen to the book out there in the big world? Will it disappear? Will it associate with the wrong sort? Uh, will it come back like the prodigal son and ask for money? <laughs> I take comfort, however, that uh, I entrust the book in good hands. This rite of passage also has the added meaning of appointing godparents and um, guardians who thereby promise to check on the book, uh, make sure it doesn't stray beyond the bounds of reason and good taste. So, panelists, I'd like to thank you in advance for keeping an eye to prevent the book from making easily foreseen mistakes. And I'd like to now f exercise my uh, final prerogative as the author uh, to clarify what this book is about, what is this crisis of expertise, but this has to begin with what it is not. So, it's not about what is now fashionably called post-truth. Um, 
this would imply that there was a time back in the past where, when we lived in truth, when we all agreed on basic empirical facts. There was never such a time. Um, it's not also about the all too easy story that it is all because internet, to borrow Gretchen McCullough's clever title. The internet does make a cameo uh, appearance in the book as the great multiplier, but of processes that preceded it, not as a prime suspect. It's also not even about the Trump administration and what it's doing to regulatory science. This is a recurrent crisis. The 1994 Republicans were no less dismissive of regulatory science. And if you go back to the 1980s and 70s, it was the left that attacked regulatory science. Finally, I'm at least to some extent at fault for miscommunicating the argument of the book by the choice of the title. The definite article, the, uh, implies that there is one crisis of something that, absent the crisis, really should be definite and solid, namely expertise. In reality, I think there isn't one, but there are multiple crises, or as I call them in the book, engines of crisis. And more importantly, there is nothing definite and solid about expertise at all. Uh, the word expertise itself, in fact, is very new. It entered the English language in the late 19th century and became a buzzword only in the 1960s. Why? Because you only need this word in context when it is unclear who the experts are and how to decide between competing claims. So you see, expertise is not something definite and solid at all. It's a way of speaking that indexes not the flourishing of expert society, but its crisis, when there is increasing instability and doubt regarding who the experts are. Now, how do we get to this point? The word crisis is typically used in contrast to um, normal, smooth state of affairs. That's not the story I tell in this book. As I said earlier, this is a recurrent crisis. If it's an illness, it's a chronic one. Uh, it's not a sudden event like an earthquake after which we engage in a cleanup. Um, it's more like a vortex or a maelstrom fed by multiple currents, there's multiple engines of crisis, while also being lent momentum by the very attempts to fight it. Now the book pays the most attention, probably too much attention, only to one of these engines of crisis, the ever closer entanglement and blurring of boundaries represented by regulatory science. I will speak mostly about it and only mention the others in passing. So every regulatory decision, let's say the FDA approval of certain opioids is safe and effective, is a visible hand that picks winners and losers. Some drug companies win big, while other people lose their livelihoods and perhaps their very lives. The visible hand needs to be legitimated. Science is mobilized to defend it. The gold standard of randomized controlled trials is a fixed to the opioid to provide it with legitimacy. But then something curious happens. Science, or more specifically regulatory science, becomes infected with the legitimacy problems that bedevil the state. We begin to question the integrity of the researcher who received industry funding. We suspect the FDA to have been captured by industry or, alternatively, by overzealous patient advocates. We even begin to question the methodology of RCTs until it is no longer so golden. In the process, alternative experts appear. We challenge the methodology, the judgment, and integrity of the official experts, thereby exposing everything that is less than rational about the decision. This is another engine of crisis, the intensification of jurisdictional struggles between groups of experts. Now, there are at least four different responses that seek to rescue regulatory science from this predicament. The first is to organize scientific consensus by means of gatekeeping mechanisms like scientific councils, 
and advisory committees. The exclusionary and non-transparent nature of this response is, of course, a source of weakness, but there is also another one. Often, nobody has expertise in the matter at hand, and so the scientific consensus is manufactured out of hot air. This has to do with another engine of crisis, namely the dynamic of overflowing by which technical or organizational solutions to existing problems generate new set of unforeseen and little understood problems. And the gatekeeping mechanism makes it hard to recognize that we don't even have the necessary expertise. The second response is the inverse. Include lay members of the public in transparent deliberations about technical matters of concern. The obvious weakness of this response is that it reduces the chances for reaching consensus. Hence, the third response seeks to reduce as much as possible reliance on both expert judgment and lay participation by eliminating the element of human judgment and replacing it with a mechanical objectivity of procedures, standardized measures, and now algorithms. This response is also weak because it promises more than it can deliver. At the same time, it further undermines trust in expert judgment while removing the locus of decision-making away from lay participation. The fourth response is to subcontract the conduct of regulatory science and the organization of scientific consensus out and below to hybrid forms composed of experts, activists, ordinary citizens, etc. But like the inclusionary response, it lacks the mechanisms for bringing debate to a legitimate end, while it's also afflicted with a debilitating state phobia, a tendency to perceive any link to the state as compromising and polluting. Not only do all these responses have marked weaknesses, they each undermine one another. Rather than arresting the crisis, they landed momentum. So we have faced with a strange phenomenon of a crisis that is no longer uh, distinct from the institutions and strategies of crisis management. I used the word pollution before advisedly. This dynamic erodes trust at its very core. On the one hand, this sort of regulatory science works its way into the very fabric of everyday life. When is the last time you actually looked in the, read the insert in your pill bottle or examined the certificate guaranteeing that the elevator into which you just stepped is safe? On the other hand, if scrutinized, this regulatory science is human, all too human, made of fallible decisions, provisional estimates, arbitrary cutoffs, etc. So we now live in an altogether different everyday world, a new cosmos. Fortuna has been replaced by risk. Who lives and who dies, who is fortunate and who loses, are traceable to all the mechanisms that are exposed when the different responses clash and undermine one another. Consequently, the depth of the unavoidable trust that is required of us is matched by a no less profound mistrust when things go wrong, a sense of pollution that prevails when what is most intimate, one's body, one's children, one's home, is revealed to be shot through with the most distant and cold-blooded calculations. Pollution accusations, as Mary Douglas demonstrated, are attempts to reconstruct the cosmos, to give order and meaning to experience, to reconstruct boundaries that have become permeable. This is another engine of crisis evident, for example, in anti-vaccination. Next, we hear from Peter B. Domenicao, the Dean of Science for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Thomas Alva Edison, Con Edison Professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia University. Professor Domenical is a scientist who studies deep sea sediments in order to understand how the Earth's climate has changed over time. He is also the founding director of the Center for Climate and Life at Columbia. 
In his comments, Professor Domenical considers the ozone depletion crisis of the 1970s and 1980s as a case study for the relationship between scientific expertise and political institutions. At the end, we'll hear some discussion between Professors Domenical and Eyal. It's really a pleasure, Gil. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. And as I was reading through the book, it really became a narrative to me for a course that I teach, an undergraduate course that I teach called Case Studies in Climate and Society. And in this course, it's a bit of a bait and switch for the students, it's for undergraduates, it fulfills the science requirement. And the, uh, the idea is that we uh, introduce the principles in the physics and the chemistry underlying three big challenges in climate that have social dimensions. This would be uh, the ozone depletion problem, uh, El Nino, and then global warming. And then each of these ends, each of these modules ends with a, with a policy component. And so it really laid bare, the book helped me really dissect my own thinking about these problems. And so I thought I'd just kind of give you a walk through what went through my mind as I was reading through your book because it really gripped me from the very beginning until the end. And, and it starts very early on with a very simple Google search on all books published since 1800 up to the present and the search for a word, in this case, it's expert, expertise, and professions, and you'll see that there's something that takes off there at the end, that's the appearance of expertise, and it's also the appearance of risk that comes in in the 60s and the 70s. What's so special about this time? And uh, you, you get into this in, in a bit. And um, what is interesting to me is that this is actually when ozone diplomacy came on the scene. And this is when, in the United States, uh, much of our scientific thinking and our social thinking was filled with dread. Part of it was the Silent Spring, and part of it was also just the emergence of ecological disaster after ecological disaster. And then, of course, the ozone depletion question, which was the first time we really were gripping a uh, planetary emergency. So this was a, a, a cue to me to sort of pay some attention to this. And so I thought I'd sort of go through these different ideas of uh, expertise, of trust, of risk, and crisis. These are four main setups to the overall problem, which then um, you bring together in this idea of there's a sort of perfect storm of, of opposing forces that make it very difficult to make progress on really difficult problems. And I would like to offer a um, salve on this at the end, which I didn't see in the book, uh, but yeah. I do think is true. So if we look at the ozone problem, so all of you may know about this, it began with the production of CFCs, which were these beautiful miracle compounds are organic uh, chlorine-based compounds that were used to create foam and, and propellants and uh, sprays and, and the like. They were used wantonly throughout the 50s and 60s, and uh, it's, uh, they have a very long lifetime. Uh, they're chlorine-based, and anything that's chlorine-based uh, we should have caution about, but uh, the industry really uh, embraced them. It was responsible for an $8 billion economy at the time, employing uh, directly or indirectly about 1.4 million people, so it's a massive industry. Uh, and it really was a miracle compound that, uh, that supported the generation. And so when uh, this paper came out in 1974 with uh, Sherry Roland et al. that discovered on a bench top that CFCs could be radicalized by ultraviolet photolysis. So basically it means light can break apart the molecule into little bits and the, and the chlorine bits in particular are, um, are magnets for destroying ozone. And so this idea that the spray propellant can make its way into the atmosphere and then into the upper atmosphere to a level of 25 kilometers in the atmosphere. We, we fly at about 10 kilometers. This is way above where we normally fly. 
this is up in an area that's sort of beyond the reach of, of people at the time, uh, that this, this, this compound, um, the ozone, is actually measured in it's 10 parts per billion. The total inventory of, of ozone, if you squished it down to uh, standard temperature and pressure, Earth's surface would just be three millimeters high. That's what protects us from total doom. Um, that's what protects us from ultraviolet radiation. So in this paper, they discovered on the benchtop that they could break apart CFCs to radicalize chlorine, which would then combine with ozone, breaks apart ozone. And they basically had a very scary last paragraph, which said, this, is, this result in this paper suggests that we're going to have a real problem down the line. And of course, this then laid, uh, brought loose the, the sort of animals and industry that came by and used all the standard tactics. And I, I urge you to read uh, Naomi Oreska's book, uh, The Merchants of Doubt, which lays this uh, amazing detail. But there, there's this battle for trust um, in the public opinion. This is very much true today. And so uh, as we get to this, then we advance our way into trust. and. It was a standard uh, tactics where it was a PR campaign uh, led by DuPont. There were dire economic uh, impacts because this was so vital to the economy. Uh, they paid uh, scientists like me, if I, if I was to participate in this, uh, to, to take the opposite side. In fact, one of these, Fred Singers, uh, someone who's going to come up later in the story, he was one of the first people to come out and, uh, and suggest that uh, this ozone science was actually hogwash. And, uh, and then the most important thing is uncertainty. And there's a great quote here on uncertainty that just uh, gripped me from the beginning, which was that um, uh, no one is ever forced by just a collection of facts to accept a particular theory of their meaning, so long as one retains intact some of other doctrine, doctrine by which he can marshal them. Moreover, when it comes to the issues at the heart of current debates, to call them facts is an abuse of language. They are estimates, models, predictions, forecasts, guidelines, points on a graph, expert judgments, but they are not facts. More than anything else, they are ways of assessing and managing uncertainty. And this is where the camel's nose enters the tent in terms of allowing science to be degraded by things that are less than science. And so then we get to the concept of risk. Um, so what's impressive is that this, this discovery was in 1974 with Roland and Molina, this benchtop discovery. It was uh, 11 years later that the British Antarctic Survey went to Antarctica to actually measure the Antarctic uh, ozone inventory and found it was 40% depleted from what it should be. And they actually thought the instruments were broken. They actually, um, the calibration of the instruments was, was such that the numbers were impossible according to their instrument because they did not allow for that envelope of uncertainty. And so they had to actually go back and reevaluate the raw data and they discovered that in that year, in 1985, the world had lost 40% of its ozone protection over the Antarctic. And right now it's around 80% and it's recovering slowly. So then we get to the crisis, and where the crisis evolves is, and keep in mind the chronology here, 1974 was when it was discovered, the process, 1985 is when the ozone hole itself was discovered and the threat revealed to humanity. And it was within one year that the Vienna Conference actually came online. And then it was only two years after that that the Montreal Protocol, which began this process of eliminating CFCs, replacing them with other industry standards, came online. And so this serves as an example of how science can frame the debate, constrain the actors. When we actually get to this question of 
inclusion and exclusion and uh, mechanical objectivity and outsourcing, this, these four forces that are affecting our understanding of these, of these processes, this gets to be, this, this is where the, the, the maelstrom occurs because we're allowing this, this process. Where I wanted to end on this is that um, at the end of the book, uh, Gill suggests that uh, he doesn't actually have a solution for how to resolve this turbulence, how to disentangle this turbulence to stop it, to allow the rise of truth or to allow the establishment of truth. And I would argue that actually time is our, is our friend on this. Uh, it's not our friend at all. It's actually we're losing so much opportunity. In it. But time will asymptote on the truth. And to me, that is where we are right now. And so uh, we can talk about this a bit more, but this is true for the ozone problem. And uh, for all of you who are following the news and what's happened with global warming, of course, uh, we've known where we are now 30 years ago. So first I'll correct myself. Time is not on our side. Um, time is uh, on our side in the sense that uh, in, the, in the search for the outcome, I won't call it truth, but what becomes asymptotically the reality of the response to our actions, um, time does unfold, and Gil, you do, you do uh, make that point. Um, one of the things that's really clear in, in every one of these uh, large sort of uh, uh, cases where science informs something of tremendous political import or social import that then gets polluted by this process that's so well defined in the book that then comes back to kind of shape our understanding or pervert our understanding of the basic science underpinning it. Um, that whole process, in my opinion, does asymptote on, on reality as it unfolds over time. So my way of sort of expanding on that point is to say that uh, from the person who's in search of whether the principle that's being explored in the, in, in the, in the case, in this case, let's say global warming or the impact of chlorine on ozone inventories, those are all things that reveal themselves in time. And so a case in point is, you know, right now the, uh, uh, the ozone inventories are, are recovering uh, very slowly and at the rate at which we expected. Uh, What's interesting is that a study just came out about four years ago called The World Avoided, which is what would have happened if we had responded to the ozone crisis the same way we are with global warming. What's fascinating is that if we had allowed um, CFC emissions to continue unabated up to the present day, there would be no ozone inventory over the Antarctic, and that would reach all the way up to the tropics and actually up to the Arctic. And so there would be uh, you know, the number of cases of mesothelioma uh, scale uh, non-linearly to uh, UV exposure, same thing for glaucoma, same thing for other eye diseases. So, I mean, the, the woe that this world would have seen just from that health crisis alone is one. So additionally, it's a greenhouse gas, so it would have multiplied the warming that we've already experienced. So there's this whole other world that we avoided just because of a scientist's ability to convey the dread factor, which then shaped public opinion. And it fit into a mindset at the time, again, Rachel Carson, Sound Spring, and just this awareness of uh, being responsible on the planet. You know, that's, we're not there at the moment. Uh, I could jump in on that, because I do, I do make a very similar point, but not exactly the same point. Um, not an asymptote to reality or the, to the truth, but the, the point I was trying to make is that 
on a lot of the attacks on regulatory science. And there's obviously ones that are basically say, I don't want to leave it and that's it. But a lot of them need to speak the same language and engage with the same numbers and techniques. And in the long run, they're going to lose because if, without knowing if this is an asymptote to the truth or not, if the science that is uh, being attacked is a good science, then you know, its calculations are defensible, uh, able, able to demonstrate that. As the example I give in the book is the climate uh, climate station audit, mm -hmm. yeah, that you know people who, who did not believe that there is climate change said, okay, let's audit uh, where they measure the temperatures, which is a, an example of citizen science, though not necessarily from the side you always expect it to be. And they measure, they measure, they measure, they really try to show that, um, you know, there is no change, and there's something wrong with the measurement of the temperatures. And the website is closed now, and you can't, you know, can't click on it anymore because they weren't able to show this. So, yeah, time does, is our friend, it's not our friend on the other side of the story, um, but, but um, yeah, so the, the, that is a conundrum. If I could just give a response to that. One of the interesting things is actually, I don't know if any of you know Richard Muller, he was a Nobel laureate, he's a Berkeley, so a contrary kind of person, um, and he agreed to work with, uh, in this case it was the Koch brothers, who partially funded, not entirely funded, mm -hmm. a study called the Berkeley Earth System Temperature Project, BEST project. And so with his imprimatur, and he hired the very best uh, statisticians and all the rest of it, and he claimed, and he said, look, the scientists may be hiding data from it, they, they may be, they may be um, manufacturing data, they may be fudging data, I am going to go through with you know, bona fides and do a full reanalysis of a billion data points and I will come up with my uh, my answer. So they disappeared for about a year or a year and a half. They came back, it's a great fanfare, cover story in the New York Times. Richard Muller says, we have reproduced the global temperature record with our methods, and it agrees to within a hundredth of a degree. So within error of the record that three or four other countries have put together, individual uh, assessments. And in the end, Richard's response was like, and, you know, I had to see it for myself, but now I'm a believer. I mean, he didn't say that. What he said about, you know, I, I once skept, I was skeptical that the Earth was warming, and indeed it's warming. And so the argument shifted to global warming's not happening to it's not us. And so, you know, the, the point, I would say, is the regulatory science focus. These are basic science questions. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Gil Eyal's book, The Crisis of Expertise. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Ilana Feldman's book, Life Lived in Relief, Humanitarian Predicaments and Palestinian Refugee Politics. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.